And so when you have an unbeliever who has the right to vote, when you give a carnal Christian who's out of fellowship with living God the same vote, when you give baby Christians who have never grown up in the faith and new Christians who haven't had enough time to grow up and a mature Christian all an equal vote, you have a formula for a good church fight. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible's teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the office of elder as part of our ongoing study in the book of 1 Timothy. Our passage today is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we pick up as Pastor Carl looks at some of the qualifications for elders, including that they teach sound doctrine. An elder is one who is to teach sound doctrine. And he is to teach sound doctrine so that the congregation in turn might be motivated to know and teach sound doctrine in turn. Well, how do they do that? By opening the word of God. Peter said to the elders, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. And Paul certainly modeled that to the Ephesian elders. He said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now that word whole indicates not only the things that men like to hear, but the things that they don't like to hear. Not only the things that I like to preach, but even the things I don't like to preach. The things that are hard to preach. That's part of exercising oversight. And we learn from Paul's discourse to the Ephesian elders that our oversight also involves guarding the people from cults and from false doctrine. He warned them, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, because that's where it often happens. People who sneak in unannounced, Jude says, they speak perverse things, they draw people away. They make disciples after themselves, and so he says, be on the alert. In John chapter 10, Jesus told us that wolves would come in sheep's clothing. Why? Because they want to destroy the sheep. And so we have to identify these wolves. We have to name them. Otherwise, young, tender sheep won't know who they are. And when you do that, especially when you're dealing with Protestants and mainline denominations that have now departed from the historical faith. You're called harsh. You're called undivisive. When you name the cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, you say you're uncaring. No, that's what an elder is to do. That's part of his job. In addition, an elder is one who rules. He leads. He has authority from God. He's going to later write in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Some elders are referred to those who rule well because they lead the flock. And so again in Hebrews 13, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And yet with such clear statements like this, many Christians in America have the false impression that the local church is a democracy. And they build their theology on the American culture rather than on the Word of God. And so in many churches, the elders are not leaders, they're followers. They stand up in a business meeting and they say, all you sheep who want to graze over here say, bah, and all you sheep over here who want to graze over here, you say, bah, and they count the bahs over here and the bahs over here, and that's how they run the church. That's not leadership. That's not according to the dictates of Scripture. You won't find that anywhere in the Word of God. What you have when you do that is a formula for disaster. 
When you have unbelievers who have a vote in your church, and you know there are unbelievers who are members of Community Bible Church. You say, do you know who they are? If I knew who they were, they wouldn't be members. <laughs> Jesus said the wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the harvest. He told us there would be unbelievers in every fellowship. And so when you have an unbeliever who has the right to vote, when you give a carnal Christian who's out of fellowship with living God the same vote, when you give baby Christians who have never grown up in the faith and new Christians who haven't had enough time to grow up and a mature Christian all an equal vote, you have a formula for a good church fight. And you know that's how many churches are planted. They don't get started with some evangelistic passion to go and reach a new segment of the community. They're started because they can't get along with other Christians very often because that was fostered in the way the church was ruled. Listen, if a pastor is a man of God, you ought to follow him. If he's not, you ought to fire him. But don't harass him. Let him lead. And so we learn that the office of elder is an office that is to be desired. Secondly, the office of elder involves oversight. But third, the office of elder is an office which involves work. Look at verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. You see that word, work? It is the Greek word ergu. If you study the etymology of the word, it comes into Latin and then into English as energy. It refers to blood, sweat, and labor. The office of elder is not a mere honor to be enjoyed. It's hard work if you're going to do the job well. Now, I've been on four elder boards in my 25 years of ministry. And I've noticed that those elders who are most successful are those elders who are willing to work. And when you're dealing with the evangelization of God's sheep, as Christ calls those future believers, with the feeding of God's sheep, with the sheep who bleed, and, and with the sheep who are gone astray, and with the sheep who are diseased, and with the sheep who need to be disciplined, it spells hard work. And some of God's men are not always willing to do that. And when that's the case, they have the responsibility to step out of the office because God's people deserve God's best. Now, when we're talking about the seriousness of this office, neither do I want to discourage any of you young men who are considering what to do with your life, I don't want to discourage you from considering being a pastor. Because God says it's a good thing. It's a fine work. Look at the qualifying adjective. It's a fine work that he does. It's a noble work. It's a good thing to consider becoming a pastor. I didn't say it was easy. Not if you do it right. But it is a good thing. It is a worthwhile thing. It is a very fulfilling thing when you are in the will of God. And so you ought to prayerfully aspire to think, what is God's call upon your life? And you ought to have just as much a call to be a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher as I have to be an elder, a pastor. Okay, having made some of those general observations about the office, now in verses 2 through 7, Paul goes on to spell out some specific qualifications for the office. He lists 15 qualities that a man is to possess for the office of overseer. And I suppose you could break down these characteristics in different ways, but they primarily fall into three groups. In verses 2 and 3, he deals with the personal qualifications. In verses 4 and 5, with the domestic qualifications. And then in verses 6 and 7, with the relational 
qualifications. So let's begin with the elders' personal qualifications. Verse 2 begins, An overseer then must be above reproach. Would you underline it, circle it, the two words, must be. Please understand, Paul is not talking about something that is optional. He is talking about something that is essential. He's not talking about something that is nice. He's talking about something that is necessary. And he says that an elder must be above reproach. The old King James says he must be blameless. The Phillips renders it, he must have a blameless reputation. Now, to be blameless or to be above reproach does not mean that you are perfect, but it does mean that you are well thought of. The New Testament never sets forth a model of perfection, but it does set forth a model of progression. The question anyone seeking to be a leader that they must ask is not, where am I? But also they must ask, in what direction am I moving? And so when Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4, he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Let me ask you a question. Do those closest to you see your progress? The question you must ask is not, am I perfect, but am I making progress? And if one is to serve in the office of elder, the Bible says he must be blameless, he must be above reproach. The word literally means nothing to take hold upon. We'd say maybe in modern English, no one who can point his finger at you and say, oh, he's a hypocrite. He lives one way and he preaches another way. He must have a good reputation. The message, which is a very loose paraphrase, says a leader must be well thought of, but that captures the essence. Second, in the personal realm, we also learn not only must he be above reproach, he must be the husband of one wife. The Greek text literally reads, a one-woman man. Now, as simple as that sounds, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that phrase, especially in the last few decades. But you can take all of the various viewpoints and boil them down into basically four categories. Roman Catholics, in defending their doctrine for the necessity of a priest to be celibate, appeal, appeal to this text of Scripture. And they, in essence, say, yes, a priest is the husband of one wife. And the wife is the church to whom he is married for his whole life. The only problem with that is you're spiritualizing the text. And to be consistent, you have to do it in other places here in the first seven verses. So the household now becomes the man's church and his children, mentioned in verse 5, now becomes the man's congregation. But that violates the basic rules of Greek grammar and language. And potentially it's very dangerous because you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Still others understand the husband of one wife as a requirement for a man to be married. And so they would say that a single person is disqualified from the office because they say the husband of one wife refers to a man who is married. Well... I think you would expect Paul to list the qualifications in terms of a man who is married because that's the norm for society. It is true, 1 Corinthians 7 teaches, that God gifts some men, some women, to be single their whole life. They don't need to be married. And God gifts them in that way in order that they may give undistracted devotion to the Lord. And we shouldn't try to marry off some people whom God has called to be single. 
But the norm in life, based on the book of Genesis and numerous other passages, is that most people in this life will be married. And so I don't think that Paul, though, is making it a requirement, though. If he were, then he couldn't be an elder, and yet he is an overseer. Like Peter, Paul could have said, I am your fellow elder. And it would exclude not only the Apostle Paul from the office, who was single his whole life, but it would also exclude the chief elder, the chief overseer, the Lord Jesus, who was single. So that one is pretty easily argued away as well. Still, others take this in more recent years, the husband of one wife, as disqualifying a man who is a bigamist or a polygamist. And so, in essence, they take the phrase, a man who has one wife at a time is qualified to be an elder. And that's become a very popular interpretation in our day as we, as we deal with the great divorce problem in the church. But I don't think it's talking about that. And I think you, just if you exercise some common sense, would know that this is not a litmus test for someone to be an, an elder. If a man was a bigamist or a polygamist, at least under the New Covenant, he wouldn't even be considered a Christian. It would not be a qualification for an elder. It would be a qualification for a church discipline. In addition, in the first century, the Roman government had outlawed bigamy and polygamy. It was against the law to have more than one wife, just as it is in our culture today. So such interpretation, a one-woman man, I think really misses the text to say one woman at a time. Now, historically, how have most Christians taken the phrase, the husband of one wife? Well, from the church fathers, right until about the middle of the 20th century, there was virtually one unanimous voice as to what this text means. And you've heard me say it often, if it's new, it's not true. And so if someone comes up with something new that no one else has seen in 20 centuries of church history, maybe, just maybe, they have to be humble enough to admit that they have missed the meaning of the text. But historically, the phrase husband of one wife has been understood to refer to a man who has been married only once. It seems to make sense, doesn't it? The husband of one wife, married only once. But I do have to say that even that phrase has two camps one who takes a more restrictive view and one a less restricted view. The more restrictive view would broaden it to include those men who had even lost their wife through death and then remarried a second time. And some would say, like Clement of Rome, or in more recently, men like S. Lewis Johnson, a professor at Dallas Seminary who taught many of the men that you listen to on the radio, a man who I deeply appreciate. I believe he was one of the finest expositors of the 20th century. He understood the phrase to also include those who had lost a spouse and been remarried. The one glitch I see in that is that it does not seem to jive with Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 7 to encourage those who have lost a spouse through death to remarry. In addition, the reverse of this Greek phrase, a one-woman man, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, which sheds some light on it. There he will write in 5.9, Let a widow be put on the list, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Literally, the Greek text reads, a one-man woman. And so what one means, the other must mean. 
Now, Paul is asking the elders to do some analysis to consider those widows that should receive financial help from the church. And he gives a whole bunch of qualifications, among them a one-man woman. Well, if it means that she couldn't get married a second time after her husband dies, then Paul would be encouraging her to potentially disqualify her later in her life from being considered from the widow's list. Now, I admit there's some merit in the view. It's the simplest way to take it. The husband of one wife, just anybody who's been married just once, has to be married just once. And it deals with every circumstance in every category. It's a possibility. But I would take the less restricted view that would say that this would just refer to those who've been married a second time via divorce. And so most commentators, virtually all, in 20 centuries of church history, took the phrase, the husband of one wife, to refer to a man who had never had a broken marriage through divorce. Now, remember, Paul is writing to a culture that is covered over in divorce, much like our culture. Probably about 70% of the members of Community Bible Church are in their second marriage, as best I can tell. Because the sins of the culture, if we reach the culture, becomes the sins of the church. But I believe what God is doing here is he's trying to model the ideal when it comes to the office of elder because God wants to protect families from the heartache of divorce. God says, I hate divorce. And many of you who've been down that road, you know the pain of it. And if you could somehow keep someone from experiencing what you have experienced, you would do everything in your power to do it. Now, please understand, God is not treating divorced people as less than good Christians. What God has called clean, let no man call unclean. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. But he's trying to protect marriage. It's much like capital punishment. God instituted it in the church. He had it instituted in Noah's day. And some nations have faithfully followed it. England did until 1961. The police officers didn't even have to wear guns. They just carried nightsticks. The murder rate was almost nil. But since that time, in 40 years, the murder rate has gone up 7,000%. Now, what God is doing is he's not down on life. He's up on life. And so with certain parameters, God allowed capital punishment to be instituted. But God is not down on divorced people. He's just up on marriage. He's trying to keep people from the pain and the heartache and little children from the horror of divorce. Dealing just yesterday afternoon, the man who visited us, thinking about divorcing his second wife, and he's only 28 years old. No, a one-woman man. A man who by his example, is able to put some salt back into the body, some salt back into the culture. A man who can, by example, model to the next generation what a marriage should be and ought to be. And certainly, a one-woman man is that kind of a man who's not a flirtatious man. He won't be unfaithful to his wife. He won't have his arms around the sisters. 
He won't be turning his head every time he sees an attractive woman to do some analysis. You can't have a divided heart and say, thus saith the Lord. He has to be crazy about one woman for life. He has to be absolutely committed to one and only one woman so that even if there are problems, he works harder and he doesn't quit sooner. Listen, if I'm a pastor and I've been divorced, if I'm on my second marriage or saving my third marriage and I get up here and I start teaching to you how you ought to have a successful marriage, you know what? It just doesn't jive. It's like a bald man selling hair tonic for hair restoration. <laughs> Now, God wants a man to be able to speak by example with authority and with power to the next generation because he's lived it out. But we need to be careful that we don't make this text of Scripture say more than it says. It does not mean that divorced people are any less equal in the church. It does not mean, as some have indicated, that their reward in heaven will be less. Hey, listen, if every single man in this fellowship met all 15 of these qualifications, actually 22 total in the New Testament, only about 5% ever in their lifetime would serve in the office of elder or deacon. We can't all be chiefs. We need some Indians too. And so to say that divorced people, because they can't serve in the office, will have less reward in heaven, by implication, you'd have to say that 95% of all the Christians who serve the Lord in the body of Christ will have less reward. No, a divorced person can be a missionary, can be a full-time Christian worker, a Sunday school teacher, all things being equal. Divorced people can serve in any ministry in the church except in the office of elder or deacon, the two offices that God has given. Let's be careful, too, that we are fair. You know what a lot of churches do? The only question they ask is, has he been divorced? Look, we're going to see in weeks ahead, there are some other things that also can permanently disqualify a person from the office of elder. And so in giving us these personal qualifications, he says he must be the husband of one wife. In addition, he says he must be temperate, prudent, respectable. Now, these next three words are closely linked together. This first word, temperate, means clear-headed. He's not self-indulgent. It speaks of a person who's able to say no at the mind, though his body and his emotions scream yes. He's a person who has a sense of balance. Then he adds prudent. The King James says sober. A man who's thoughtful and wise. A man who's able to take that which he's absorbed in the mind and to flesh it out in daily life practically. The third word is respectable. The King James says good behavior. The RSV says dignified. The Greek word is kosmios. It means well-ordered, well-arranged. It's an expression of a person whose outward behavior reflects inner self-control. And really, all three of these words are a trilogy of sorts because each of them bear witness to some degree of self-control in the life. The next qualification, if you'll notice, is hospitable. This is a man who, who manifests an open heart in an open home. He'll do anything that he can in his power and in his resources to help meet the needs of God's people. Then he tells us an elder is to be able to teach. It doesn't say teachable, able to teach, apt to teach, one translation renders it. It's not an adjective, though by, without a doubt, a man who is an elder ought to be teachable. When I look for leaders in the church, 
I look to hire someone on our staff, the two biggest requirements is they have a heart for God and a teachable attitude. If a man has lost his teachability, he's worthless. He can't be any good to the work of the kingdom of God. He has let his pride get in his way. But an elder is to be apt, able to teach. It doesn't mean that he has to have a speaking gift like the gift of teaching. Now, we will see when we come to chapter 5, some elders, as you would expect, are gifted in that way by God. But it does refer to his maturity in Christ so that he can open the word of God and someone comes to him with an issue of doctrine or a question in his life. And he's able to point to scripture and say, well, this is what God says. And that's something that not an elder alone is supposed to do. That's something that you ought to seek to do. Because if you're going to fulfill the Great Commission, Jesus told you, not just me, that we're to teach all that he commanded us. The writer of the Hebrews says, by this time you, speaking of the congregation of Jewish believers to whom he is writing, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to be able to teach you. They hadn't grown up enough in Jesus Christ where they could take the word of God and answer basic questions. That's not something that God just calls a professional like me to do. God calls me to model it as an elder to encourage you to do the exact same thing. And by the way, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't get this sudden burst of zeal and energy. It takes disciplined time, a long time, lingering in the presence of God and in His Word. That's how an elder has the ability to impart the truth of Scripture. And a man who is so weak in his knowledge of Scripture such that he cannot teach others what God has plainly has said is not qualified to be an elder. And that's one of the problems in so many churches today you got these men who are leading the church and they're violating basic truths of the Word of God. Verse 3 tells us in addition in these personal qualities, an elder is not to be addicted to wine. The Greek phrase literally reads, one who sits alongside of wine. Paul is saying when you see a man who's characterized by sitting alongside a glass of wine, you have found a man who has disqualified himself to be a leader in the church. Now, very clearly, this verse does not teach total abstinence. But if you know your Bible, you would expect that it would not teach total abstinence in light of the first century. Now, I'm not going to preach on it this morning. I'll wait until we come to those qualifications for deacons where this one is repeated, and we'll spend a little bit more time on it. But let me just say, two things are forbidden in Scripture. One, to get drunk. The other, to use strong drink. And before you can apply any passage of Scripture to your life, you must first ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And when I understand what it meant to them, then I can make proper application for the 20th century or the 21st century. Strong drink in biblical times, you say, well, that was vodka and beer and, I mean, vodka and whiskey and scotch, right? No, it wasn't that. That didn't come until centuries later. It's raw, fermented wine. God said, don't ever use it. Now, how did they use it in the first century? Well, the water was often impure to drink. It would make you sick, and so they would constantly, so they wouldn't continually, especially as they traveled, have to boil water. They would add wine to the water, typically anywhere from a 5 to 1 ratio as the Didash, a 2nd century manual for pastors in preparing the Lord's table specifies, or very often 10 to 1, 10 parts water, 1 part wine. It killed the bacteria. It was a missionary practice up until the last century to keep you healthy. An elder must not be addicted to much wine. 
and tomorrow we'll look at why God places such importance on this qualification. For a copy of today's message, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM7, entitled The Office of Elder. You can also use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. At that website, all of Dr. Brogy's messages are there, as well as you'll find out a little bit more about this ministry. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at the role of elders and search the scriptures.